This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners, and welcome to New Books and Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Hedy V. Williams, your host. Today on New Books and Intellectual History, we have Dr. Christopher Cameron, who is an Associate Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte and the author of Black Free Thinkers, A History of African-American Secularism, published by Northwestern University Press in 2019. Welcome to the show, Dr. Cameron. Thank you very much for having me. Excited to uh, talk over my work with you. Absolutely. Black Free Thinkers is an important work in critical historical intervention, and I believe the first comprehensive history of African-American secularism that traverses two centuries. First, we will discuss Dr. Cameron's biography and some thoughts on intellectual history in general. And then we will engage in a more detailed discussion of Black free thinkers. Dr. Cameron, please tell us some more about your teaching and research interests. Sure. Uh, I did my uh, graduate work at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, where I studied with uh, Heather Williams, a prominent scholar of slavery in uh, 19th century African-American history. So my primary uh, teaching interests are in um early American history, early African-American history, and just African-American history in general. Um, So most of the courses I teach are uh, general ones on topics like the American Revolution or colonial America. I also teach the uh, survey of African-American history up through uh, Reconstruction. Um, And uh, I also offer courses on American intellectual history um, up to the Civil War. And my research interests pretty much coincide uh, with my teaching interests, as is, as is usually the case. So I'm a scholar of um, American uh, religious and intellectual history, um, African-American religion, African-American thought, um, and of slavery and the abolitionist. Right. I, I note that your early work is, your earlier book is um, focused on, you know, as an early Americanist. And uh, that's why I find the book such a, um, I think, a great task that you've performed and that it covers nearly two centuries. And um, so how did you come to study the history of African-American free thinkers? So it started um, probably around 2012. I began this project and it kind of grew out of my first book, not not any sort of direct path or anything, um, but I was completing uh, final edits for uh, my first book to plead our own cause. And I think I was looking for um, information in a footnote or something like that. I'm trying to check my sources and I 
I happened to be rereading Al Rabito's classic work, Slave Religion. And um, towards the very end of the book, for, for most of the text, Rabito deals with sort of the um, syncretism of, of African um, and Christian religions uh, in colonial and in early America up through uh, the antebellum period. Um, but towards the very end, he actually has a couple of pages that start out with the line, of course, not all slaves believe in, you know, these ideas I've been discussing for the past 300 pages. Some couldn't reconcile notions of a just and loving God uh, with their situation um, as enslaved people. So he goes through and he gives a couple of examples, nothing too in-depth, right? Um, he didn't, I'm guessing he didn't want to get too off topic uh, for his book, but just wanted to add a little bit of nuance and complexity and that really sort of piqued my interest because while I had read uh, some of Tony Penn's work on, on Black humanism and Sakibu Hutchinson's work on uh, contemporary Black atheism, I really hadn't encountered a whole lot about uh, atheism or secularism in the slave community. So that sort of led me digging um, to see what I could find on uh, irreligiosity uh, among slaves and um so that, that that was sort of the beginning of it around late 2012 and and just kind of, you know, went down the rabbit hole of looking for different sources. And then once I started finding sources, I started thinking to myself, oh, I wonder, you know, what other historiography on this topic there is. And it turns out there really wasn't a historiography on this topic. You get little tidbits here and there that this person was an atheist, that person was an atheist, but nothing is really made of that fact, right? When somebody is, uh, when somebody converts to evangelical Protestantism, scholars will often take that moment of conversion and say, well, their, their newfound religious and theological commitments would then inform their politics and would inform this or that. But when somebody becomes an atheist, it's almost as if that had no impact on their life. And um, I, I suspected that that was not the case. Um, so, of course, that sort of led me to continuing uh, my historical um, digging and found a great amount of evidence uh, indicating uh, not only the presence of uh, atheism, agnosticism, and other forms of free thought among African Americans, but also the significance in terms of literary and cultural production uh, and political ideology and activism from the 19th century uh, up through the civil rights movement. Yeah, this I think um, the book is important because it's performing a task in regards to how we, it's going to change the way we look at the culture of the enslaved uh, population, I think, because sort of like you said, and you touched on this in the introduction, this is, these sources have been read in a particular way and assumptions are made you know, about the slave community regarding uh, religion and that was taken forward and and um, the studies of um, African-American culture through the 19th century. So that is it's a work of intervention in that way, I think, in regarding African-American culture, religion, right? And any, even yeah, yeah. You know, sources is very important, I think. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the sources that I use for, for that first chapter on slavery, for example, are um, ones that other scholars have used, right? I'm using slave narratives, travel accounts, speeches, things like that. But it's just 
a way of reading them and asking different questions of these sources, not what can they tell us about the religious life of slaves, but is there anything that we can find out about the secular um, you know, aspect of the slave community? And I think it also speaks to your work, speaks to how it's a more nuanced understanding of the way people think. You know, at one point, someone might be a believer at the same time, right? What they're saying and doing might reflect a sort of unbelief, you know? Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. I think that's important. Yeah, we see this with a figure like Frederick Douglass, right? Um, who scholars have really had a hard, have, have had a hard time kind of pinning down exactly where he is religiously. And, you know, he even says in his second autobiography, My Bondage, My Freedom, that his religious opinions have ranged from the blackest atheism, which is actually a pretty telling phrase, um, to the most ardent religious belief, right? So where exactly is Douglas? And, and like you say, somebody might seem like they're a believer, right? He always used this language of divine providence and all of that. Um, but he was also the one at the final meeting of the anti American Anti-Slavery Society in 1870 said, while you guys are thanking God, um, I like to thank men. It's only through the actions of human beings that I can even have any conception um, of God, which is, a, of course, is a perspective firmly rooted in um, humanism and in secularism. Yeah, this is an important point because Baldwin, again, it's, it's like James Baldwin you talk about a little bit, who says, well, religion is supposed to make us more free. And if it doesn't, then it needs to be rejected. Right. So they're focused on their freedom. And there's where, you know, we could talk about a little later. One of the questions about it's the same. There's a continuity to this thinking down to the present, where um, Tupac Shakur is saying, only God can judge me. But the verse of one of his songs that he's saying, but does heaven have a ghetto? Only God can judge. He's, so he's going back, he's vacillating between belief and unbelief, like Douglas says. And there's a continuity, there's a historical continuity to it. And the first part of, of that continent, the historical continuity is this work, Black Free Think, this, you know, important. Um, so if we're talking about Sierra um, um, focus on um, thought and ideas. Uh, what is your definition of the term intellectual? Somebody, I think an intellectual is somebody who self-consciously um, tries to theorize about their world and in some way to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and in some way to try to uh, record their theories or, or preserve their theories and ideas um, for posterity. So, um, you know, all, all people have the capacity to be intellectuals. Um, not all people sort of take on that, that hard work, um, of, of trying to, you know, employ critical thought and, and reason, um, and, and think deeply about the, the social, cultural, and political worlds that they live in. Um, so basically, I, I think it's an intellectual, what, what sort of distinguishes an intellectual from somebody who's not is, is just the kind of intention um, of, of trying to sort of consciously make sense of your world um, or consciously try to produce some ideas that um, can then be acted on in, in some way, right? 
Um, so I certainly don't see any, um, any, you know, distinction between, uh, like intellectual and cultural history that is, of course has been a big, um, divide in the field and a big question, right? Where are the limits between high culture and low culture or popular culture, right? Um, can, can we call musicians intellectuals? Yeah. Anybody who is trying to construct, um, theories about their world and trying to think critically about the world that they live in uh, can be an intellectual. And we can find um, sort of intellectual history in all types of sources, right? Up until 40 years ago, people generally looked at political treatises and um, letters and newspapers and things like that. But of course, uh, over the past couple of decades, and especially, you know, in the past probably five to 10 years, scholars are really working hard to try to broaden our conception, um, not only of what an intellectual is, but of the kind of foundations and the archive uh, of intellectual history so that we can find people's ideas in, you know, uh, women's advice manuals, right, or um, things like that. So I want to press you a little bit more on this, on two things that you already brought up, the, the lineation between intellectual history and cultural studies by um, just using a quote from David Hollinger. So David Hollinger has uh, stated that American intellectual history is, quote, the history of people who made a living by arguing, end quote. This statement suggests that historians of American intellectual history focus their work on the study of elites. So if we've got your working definition of an intellectual in intellectual history, how would you define American intellectual history and or more specifically African-American intellectual history? I would define African-American intellectual history as um, the history of uh, black ideas and the history of black people thinking and expressing their ideas. So the distinction with Hollinger is the, the uh, phrase made a living Right. I don't think you necessarily need to have made a living um, arguing. Right. And I think a lot of scholars of black intellectual history see the subjects of their research as just people who argue, not necessarily who made a living by arguing. Right. Because uh, African-Americans haven't necessarily had um, had the uh, ability at times um, you know, to put aside uh, regular jobs and things like that to just focus on intellectual production and to just uh, focus on intellectualism. But that doesn't mean that they're not um, intelligent. That doesn't mean they're not capable of producing great ideas. It just means that we need to be more creative in finding their ideas and finding where their ideas are produced, the geography um, of their ideas um, and in uh, locating and locating their archive, basically. Definitely. And I think um, just the, the um, variety of sources um, that you use in this text sort of proves that point, that you almost have to look everywhere for thought, especially for people who don't have access yeah, to the academy. Yeah, certainly. And to your point about... Um, just to get back to a point you made about cultural studies, right? Um, that, I, you know, I, I see black intellectual history as sort of a part 
of cultural studies. When I think of cultural studies, I, I think of something that um, is more explicitly interdisciplinary, right? Um, and that is more explicitly trying to speak to kind of um, contemporary politics and contemporary culture. Whereas black, black intellectual history is certainly, you know, a political project. African-American history in general is probably, you know, more political, more explicitly political than, um, than American intellectual history. But um, I, I do think that um, a, a lot of scholars of black intellectual history aren't necessarily um, explicitly trying to always speak to the present in the way that scholars of cultural studies are, but that their work certainly informs um, present kind of political and uh, cultural dynamics. Um, so that, that that's what I would see to be kind of the distinctions between them, that I think Black intellectual history makes up an important foundation um, of cultural studies and uh, at times can be very analogous um, but at other times does have a distinction in being more focused on the past. Okay, so yeah, that's a great uh, response to that question about the delineation between intellectual history and cultural studies. I want to get in just a quick uh, discussion of the African-American Intellectual History Society and their work, because I think, you know, you as the founder of the of the society uh, and the blog Black Perspectives, I think, is doing this work, sort of bridging the divide or at least making the connections between intellectual history and cultural studies and how they're interrelated. So if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about how that idea came about and the work of uh, the society. Sure. Um, so I, um, I I became a faculty member in 2010, um, and I started pretty uh, early on participating in the um, annual conference of the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Um, wonderful intellectual space, um, incredibly inviting um, people there. Uh, I also uh, wrote a number of guest posts um, on their um, award-winning blog, right? Um, but as much as I enjoyed my presentations there and the reception that uh, my blog post did get, Nevertheless, I did notice that, you know, when I did attend their conference, I was one of relatively few uh, African-American scholars, and my panels were generally also one of few panels uh, on um, Black intellectual history. So um, within this sort of premier organization focusing on American intellectual history, it just seemed that um, Black thought got somewhat short shrift, right? Um, so, uh, after attending that conference a couple of times, I thought, you know, it would be really great to have something similar to the Society for U.S. Intellectual History, but focused only on, um, Black thinkers, right? And so I started to just kind of get this idea in my head after the, um, 2013 U.S. Intellectual History Conference, which was in uh, Irvine, California, I think in October or November of that year. So I started just kind of kicking around ideas like what what could a similar organization uh, focus on Black thought do, right? Um, in, in this digital age, I thought it was important that we have a blog, um, but I also thought the blog would just be sort of the entry point 
into what could become a broader organization, right? Um, that people could read and engage with the blog and then from there want to engage um, in, in the real world, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we started the blog. Uh, I started kind of uh, putting the blog together in early 2014, just emailing dozens and dozens of people, you know, probably for every 10 people that I emailed, I got one person who uh, said, sure, I'll write, you know, a post every month or something like that. Um, so that, that process took me about six months and then we launched uh, the blog on um, Ju in July 1st, uh, 2014. I think we had, you know, nine or 10 bloggers who would write posts uh, for once a month. And uh, from there, you know, things took off pretty quickly. Again, um, largely because of the support of some other organizations, right? U.S. intellectual history folks, the Hunto, uh, which is a blog dedicated to early American history. A lot of these folks like really helped to, you know, they shared our posts. They helped to popularize our work. Um, but, you know, things just kind of took off from there and partially because, of what you mentioned, how um, this this project contributes to cultural studies in that, yes, a lot of the posts were explicitly historical, but then other people started writing posts addressing kind of the historical implications of contemporary political or cultural events, right? Um, so Janelle Hobson, early on, for example, she was one of our first bloggers, um, and she wrote, she wrote this wonderful uh, post sort of uh, analyzing the historical precedence to Nicki Minaj's um, Anaconda video. I don't know if you remember that from like five or six years yes, back. Yeah, yeah. And so this is something that was, um, you, know, you know, grounded in important historical analysis, but spoke to something that was really prominent in contemporary Black and American popular culture, right? Um, so, and, and I think people saw like how, you know, how many folks shared her work and the traffic that she was getting. And it, it showed us, it showed the other bloggers that there's really something to, to this if we're going to um, use our historical knowledge, our historical research skills to kind of explicate uh, contemporary popular culture. So, um, it's not that not that people kind of completely abandoned writing solely about historical topics, but to a greater extent, you saw bloggers start to sort of incorporate historical analysis of contemporary cultural and, and political events. And that um, that really sort of helped the blog take off. Uh, and from there, you know, we use that as sort of our entree into membership in the organization, which we always try to keep at a very low and affordable price. And as we get more and more members, that just allowed us to do more work, like offering fellowships to scholars working in Black intellectual history, working in the field, whether graduate students or faculty members, as well as offering things like the book prize or the article prize um, and funding our annual conference. Right. It's definitely a very important work that uh, I think needs to be lauded more, uh, especially as we discuss, you know, bridging the dot. The, the divide between um, history and contemporary uh, culture. So let's move on to to focus uh, more specifically on your book, Black Free Thinkers. 
a few questions. Uh, one question I have specifically related to Black free thinkers is that you seem to focus primarily on uh, a, a few specific individuals, uh, writers, uh, ministers, activists, and so on. Sort of Neil Hurston, uh, Richard White, Du Bois. And uh, why this particular group of individuals, this connects to a question about sources that we have already sort of brought up. Um, were you led by the sources more so, or was it this particular group that seemed to be most interesting? Yeah, I, I was primarily led by the sources. And um, one of the things that you find in, in just studies of secularism and free thought in general is that uh, for the most part, um, religious skepticism and, and secularism tends to be um, more concentrated among um, educated folks, right? Um, so you go to college and start taking courses in philosophy or history or you know con comparative religions or whatnot, and start to really kind of question the foundations of things that you'd been taught. Uh, and that's, of course, the purpose of a liberal arts education, not necessarily to undermine religious belief, but just to to make you question. Right. And so so some people who don't necessarily have that um, kind of educational background, they may not even think to question the you know evangelical Protestantism or their upbringing in Islam or, or something like that. Right. It, it may just never even occur to you. So this is this is kind of why, um, uh, at least this history up until the civil rights movement is, you know, more focused on um, those who are uh, a little bit more highly educated, right? Folks who had gone to college or or even self-taught people, right? So it, you look at people like Hubert Harrison. He, you know, he didn't go to college or anything, but he was so incredibly well self-educated that he could have taught most of the philosophy or history uh, courses that a lot of professors at the time were teaching, right? And in fact, he, he sort of did teach these classes, but he did so on a stepladder in Harlem or Washington Square as opposed to a classroom in Columbia, right? Um, so, yeah, so, so that's sort of why is that, that free thought has just often been more prevalent um, among those with at least some college education. Um, but but as you noted, I, I, I sort of went where the sources led, right? So any evidence that I could find of um, free thought, you know, in some sort of uh, written form, you know, that, that's sort of what I relied upon. Uh, the first chapter, however, is looking at secularism among a decidedly non-elite segment um, of the black population, right? So we're not finding free thinkers among the black middle class in Philadelphia or New York City, although there, there may have been some here and there. They didn't leave records to that effect. But most of the free thinkers that I'm exploring in chapter one uh, are enslaved individuals with no formal education at all, many of whom couldn't even read. Exactly. That's the, and that's the point of intervention I think you're making in terms of um, the enslaved communities, but also rereading the sources, say, for instance, your discussion of Nella Larson's work and how that's situated in the context of free thought. 
you know, rereading, you know, her works and then saying that, you know, this is an example of um, free thought in her critique of black society, respectability in the church and so on. Exactly. That, um, that is the core, I think, value, one of the core values of this text. It's not so much I found new sources, but I'm rereading these and recasting this history in um, significant ways. I think that's uh, one of the core points of importance. And you also, um, looking at the intro in the first chapter, where you talk about the fact that it was assumed that um, Black people were primarily superstitious. You know, these were not thinkers. Um, They were superstitious and henceforth, you know, their religiosity was profound, but that in itself is a sort of type of, um, um, in terms of just assume it's a it's a racist assumption. Yeah, yeah, it, you know, it definitely they're not is. thinkers. And and the the thing is, it's a racist assumption that came from somebody who I certainly would not characterize as a racist, right? Um, so the first sort of example I have of this is from William Ellery Channing, who I discuss um, in that introduction. And Channing was, you know, highly involved in um, the movement to try to end slavery. He didn't necessarily call himself an abolitionist and he didn't join a society, but he did publish seven books calling for the end of slavery in various ways between 1835 uh, and 1842, right, and had countless discussions with um, other Unitarian ministers on this very question. Um, so, you know, he, he certainly wasn't, you know, this um, raging racist or anything like that and saw himself as an advocate uh, on behalf of African Americans. I think for him, he probably thought that that was a compliment, right, this idea that Black people are naturally religious he probably saw that in, in, in this sort of growing age of romanticism, right, and, and um, a turn away from the Enlightenment. He probably saw that as, you know, these are people of really deep feeling and deep emotion. And, you know, they, they would never do something like rise up and kill their masters or something because they're they're just too religious to do something like that, right? But what in effect he was doing was sort of denying an important aspect of their humanity and just of uh, humanity in general. But a more humanistic portrait that you're painting is that, and, you know, they they do what human beings do. Yeah, exactly. They reject ideas and accept ideas along the way. And that's, I think, a critical intervention in looking at, you know, African-American history in general. You know, the assumptions we make about who is an intellectual and who is not, who thinks and who, who does not, who has access to the archive. Um, all of that, I think, the book raises all of these sort of questions. And um, this is sort of a variation of a question I thought about. You cite the Pew Research Center study of religion and talks about the fact that African Americans are the most religious of ethnic groups in the U.S. and so on and still many still embrace a literal interpretation of the Bible, but I'm wondering if your work has sort of raised or how do, how do people who are very religious, friends of yours, family members, look at, do they see it as sort of an attack? You know, like, yeah, uh, I'm wondering if... 
not, not really. Uh, I, I mean, you know, a, a lot of my family members, especially like my in-laws, right, on um, my wife's family and all that, um, who live down here in North Carolina, so I probably interact with them more than my own family up in New Hampshire. But, you know, a lot of them are highly religious, but at the same time, they're just proud of me, right? I'm just the, the son-in-law or the brother-in-law who wrote a book. And yeah, they might not necessarily agree with it. And honestly, they, they might not even read it. They just know I'm writing about some atheist or something like that. Um, so, so they don't necessarily see it as an attack, right? Uh, it, it's funny because I'm a free thinker myself, but they'll still say stuff like, well, I know you don't believe in this, but I'm going to pray for you anyway, right? Um, so yeah, I, I certainly get things like that, but um yeah, I haven't necessarily um, encountered that um, that perspective. I, I do hope, like, w- while this is um, kind of a scholarly contribution published with the university press, at the same time, I do think that it's also sort of a contribution to the modern Black secular movement, right? In that, you know, any... Um, African Americans themselves today who are maybe skeptical or think that they might be skeptical or something, um, you know, they, they can pick up my book and see that what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're doubting, um, that there's a long history of some of the most prominent voices in black culture and politics that have thought the same things, that have doubted the same religious tenets that that they are doubting, right? Um, so, so I do think, um, I'm, I'm not sure if this is where you're going, but I do think that this work can, does have the potential to, um, to maybe increase that, you know, growing number of religious nuns and, and unaffiliated African-Americans that, that we've seen sort of double um, over the past couple of decades from from the Pew Forum. <clears throat> right, definitely. I think, yeah, I think it definitely could be used that way. That's what attracted me to the text. It's just looking to be able to document this long history of free thought and black light. And um, again, that might be used by contemporary black free thinkers. Um, to move along, you know, Looking at some of the other uh, individuals that you look at, Lorraine Hansberry, James Baldwin's, and their unbelief, how much of that is shaped by homophobia in the black church and 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 and, and African American society? It's a big conversation right now regarding one of the political candidates, and there's this suggestion that it's homophobia that's in black society that's sort of making African-Americans less reluctant to support the candidate. And uh, so I'm wondering how much of their unbelief free thought was actually shaped by their own experiences in, in the black church and or society. Yeah. So for, for folks like, like Hansbury and Baldwin, what I have seen, um, while they were certainly critics, of course, of homophobia in the black church and in just American life more broadly, uh, from the evidence that I found, they were actually more critical of what they saw to be a lack of political engagement um, in the black church, right? James Baldwin has this, this line in the fire next time where he's saying, you know, I had been a preacher for three years 
And after those three years, it took everything that I had not to stammer and not to yell at my congregation, not to tell them to get off their knees and stop praying and go and organize a rent strike or something like that. Right. Um, so for, for probably most of the free thinkers during, um, you know, during the Harlem Renaissance, during the uh, period where you start to see more um, blacks joining the Socialist and Communist Party in the 20s and 30s, up through the civil rights era, probably the primary critique um, that black secular thinkers make is that the black church is too otherworldly. Um, and it's not, it, it has been ineffective at historically addressing slavery and in the contemporary moment of addressing Jim Crow racism, right? Um, and that, that the only way to, to truly be able to eradicate racism in American society is to reject Christianity because they see Christianity as intimately tied to supporting uh, the color line as historically tied to supporting um, slavery. And for them, the black church just wasn't doing enough. Now, if we look at the contemporary moment, um, you know, I, I don't want to sort of overinflate the presence of homophobia within black culture. I don't think African-Americans are any more homophobic than American society more broadly, but I, I certainly have found some evidence um uh, of homophobia within black churches and just within churches in general, turning uh, African-Americans away and, and making them embrace uh, free thought. So yeah, that, that, that certainly is a thing. I haven't necessarily found it to be as prominent historically, but I do think it's become, it became more important um, in the eighties and nineties. And that's something that I'll explore um in more depth in the second volume that I'm going to write because this first book ends right around 1975 and the second volume will pick up there and take the story up to the early 21st century. Right. You, and, and you bring up the same point too, when you look at the communists and when they, you know, Philip Randolph and sort of like, you're not, black church is not doing it. We're going to reject that Christianity, white Christianity, black Christianity, because we're trying to get our freedom and, not doing enough so definitely i can um, see that um so so a controversial question is we're starting to to wrap up here a little bit uh if you don't mind <laughs> has the do, do you think an over reliance on religion and black life has in any way impeded the growth and the development of intellectual life in um, black society um as a dominant force or as a as a a a um, major force in black life has it also impeded in some ways intellectual life for black americans you know i probably differ from a lot of contemporary black free thinkers in saying no i i don't think religion or the black church has impeded black intellectual life i think american racism has been the primary uh, factor and the overwhelmingly primary factor in impeding the development of black intellectual life because of segregation, underfunded schools, poverty, lack of health care, right? So if you look at sort of the origins of the black church and the growth um, of African-American denominations like the AME Church, the AMEZ Church, um, 
you know, the a- AMEs were at the forefront of producing uh, and encouraging Black intellectual life, right? And and a build and a building um, Black colleges and, and building alliances with HBCUs. So I, I think Black churches have really and ministers, of course, were oftentimes the only um, sort of public intellectual in their communities. So I think if anything, the black church, even though I disagree with its theology and at in a lot of moments throughout American history would have uh, liked for it to take different sort of political and social positions. I think the black church has been, you know, one of the institutions that has uh, been effective in a lot of times at combating the racist structures that have impeded um, black intellectual life. Yeah, well said. I think that's well said. Definitely. Um, yeah, American racism is the driver and the response by the church, right? I think um, it's very well said. Um, this sort of takes us into our last question regarding perhaps your future plans, future research on this topic. Um, I find, because I work in the 20th century, it, this reading your book always took me back to uh, the 20th century post-civil rights moment when African-American communities are facing deindustrialization, mass incarceration, and the crack epidemic, and um, their response to it in um, popular culture, and the level of nihilism among rappers like Tupac Shakur and N.W.A. Um, seems remarkably linked to a larger continuity of, of um, belief and doubt, um, and I'm wondering if you could speculate about, um, you know, this idea of there being the type of unbelief that we see at this particular moment and how this, how it might connect to your overall work on um, African-American secularism. Yeah, so, so the, um, Black Tree Thinkers ends in 1975 specifically because I think we see really important shifts after that moment. And they were shifts that were so prominent and important that um, trying to include them in this book just would have made it a little bit unwieldy, I think. And I really thought they deserved its own book. But you are certainly right that the sort of deindustrialization that we start to see um, taking off in the 70s and really accelerating in the 80s, as well as mass incarceration and, and other factors, you know, the sort of resurgent conservatism. Uh, in American political life in the 1980s certainly has an impact um, on the course of Black free thought, right? We see, um, you know, these reflections on on life and death and, and God and theological reflections in, um, uh, in hip-hop music. We also see the um, growing sort of move towards institutionalizing African-American secularism, right? So prior to the 1980s, uh, most Black freethinkers had been in other organizations, right? You see Black freethinkers in Unitarian Universalist churches or Black freethinkers in the Black Panther Party. And so, so those are organizations created for other purposes that happen to have freethinkers in them, right? Whereas after 1989 and the creation of African Americans for Humanism, you start to get, you know, explicitly black secular organizations 
that then start to do other things, right? But it, it's kind of flipping the script a bit in that they're creating these organizations specifically for the purpose of secularism, and then they might engage in other forms of political activity or whatnot. So this is what I see to be kind of um, the central theme um, of Black free thought is really its institutionalization um, and its growth uh, after um, probably the mid-1980s. Very, very uh, fascinating work. And uh, let me end by asking you, uh, what are you currently working on? Any new projects? Is it just this follow-up project or you have a new book coming out soon? So I've, I've two, well, really three projects I'm working on. One is an edited collection entitled Race, Religion, and Black Lives Matter um, that explores both the um, historical precedents uh, and kind of the um, contemporary implications of the intersection of uh, religion and BLM. Um, and that's uh, co-edited with Philip Luke Sinatere, who's at the College of Biblical Studies in Houston. Um, my main monograph that I'm working on is uh, actually a study uh, called Liberal Religion and Race in America, which explores the history of African-American Unitarians and Universalists from the late 18th century up until the recent creation of Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism. So I'll be primarily writing that book for the next probably year and a half to two years. Uh, and then after that, I'll get to uh, volume two. Um, of Black free thinkers, which I've been collecting sources and kind of thinking about that a lot, but I probably won't start actually writing that book until about 2022 or so. Prolific scholar. <laughs> I try. It's really um, well, Dr. Cameron, we have taken up enough of your time this morning, but I want to thank you for participating in this interview about your important book, Black Free Thinkers. Thank you so much. Thank you again for having me.